Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast that most weeks lately has been about David Lynch, but this week we're taking a little detour to talk mm. about Otto Preminger's Laura, and I should introduce my co-host. I've been so rude. Nia, hi. <laughs> hi. It's an invitation to love fancast. It's an invitation to love fancast. Usually. This week, not. But, you know. <clears throat> Um, it still kind of is. The reason why we're watching yeah. it is still David Lynch, and specifically yeah. Twin Peaks. Um, usually I give a little spoiler warning about talking about Twin Peaks stuff. Uh, that's not going to ha- happen. There's not going to be any like directly relatable plot stuff. So if you have not, if you've been avoiding episodes because you don't want Twin Peaks spoilers, this episode's going to be fine. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I still might mention, like, vague premise stuff about Twin Peaks, but that feels very different than, like, there's no reason to talk about the end of either series or anything like that. We might mention, like, oh, Laura Palmer's dead. If you didn't know that about Twin Peaks, uh, I've got great news to you about the first three minutes of Twin Peaks. Josie looks into that mirror, and then Laura Palmer is dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other big thing that we're going to mention is that uh, Kyle McLaughlin plays a man named Agent Dale Cooper, who is an FBI agent. Mm-hmm. You also find that out in like the first episode. It's like halfway yeah. through, though. <clears throat> um, we got a couple other things to bef- talk about before we get to... to- our usual segment one where we just talk about the movies we've seen. And I confess that part of the reason I'm bringing in these other things to talk about is that I've only watched one movie because I've been in a video game haze. My, my work has been so stressful lately that I've just been like coming home and playing video games and turning off my fucking brain. I've barely watched movies, but I have other stuff to talk about. Like for example, David Lynch's biography from which I got a couple of amusing anecdotes. (laughs) I sent oh, you. Yeah. I sent you like six of these today. Uh, I'll just share. There was one from Elephant Man and one from Blue Velvet that I wanted to share since we've already discussed those movies, and I don't think anybody's like pressed about spoilers for those movies. Um, uh, the Blue Velvet one is that that is not an animatronic bird. Were you able to listen to this clip I sent you just before we started? Oh, it didn't send. No, it, I was trying to send you something just before we hit record and it didn't send. So I'll just tell you this live on the air. So you uh, like <clears throat> Robins are a like protected species basically. And so you can't just like go out and get a Robin to like have it on a movie set, you know? Yeah. And so in the words of, of Lynch's biographer, um, the crew quote, had their feelers out for Robins, and apparently some some school kids saw a dead Robin one day and brought it to school, and one of the teachers was, like, like married to someone who was working on the movie, and so <laughs> let them know, like, hey, my kids brought me, or my students brought me a dead bird. Do you want it? <laughs> And David Lynch said yes. So that is not an animatronic bird. That is a real bird that David Lynch is apparently sitting under that kitchen window 
puppeting with little little twine uh at the end of the movie which is fucking crazy (laughs) (laughs) um uh i can't remember the the there was like a bunch from elephant man um let me see i i guess just there there's the one about um what anthony hopkins there's like a a a rumor that he wanted lynch fired which he never like actually tried to get him fired but did seem to not like lynch yeah lynch describes a lot of the uh experience of working on the elephant man sorry i was shouting for the first couple minutes of the podcast i just took one of my headphones off uh and realized i'd been screaming into the microphone so that's gonna stop (laughs) anyway um so yeah david uh, or he describes a lot of the experience of making the elephant man as like he's this like young director who made him like all these like stuffy english actors he was working with didn't like Eraserhead, the ones who had even seen it um and like they don't know who this kid is he's just some like you know midwestern dude and they're all like stage actors of of like you know the london theater for like decades and they're like i don't really like trust this guy to make a movie and basically everybody on set just like low-key kind of hated him um and like some of them like like it sounds like a uh ann bancroft and a couple of the others started to respect him like as the movie went on whereas like like anthony hopkins uh like Anthony Hopkins like fully did not believe in him until he saw the movie. He's like, Oh shit, that was a great movie. I guess I should have trusted that guy. (laughs) Um, Apparently John Hurt was basically the only actor on set who liked David Lynch. (laughs) So um, that's my, that's my funny anecdote update from the the biography of David Lynch, um, which can't stress this enough. Probably not really worth your time reading. I'm not enjoying this book very much, but you know, (laughs) um, other thing to talk about. I finished deep space nine season one. You also did that, but you've done that many times. Yeah. And I did too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you were, you were telling me I should talk about deep space nine. Did you have, um, any like questions you wanted to ask me or I can just give you like impressions if you want. Yeah, I mean, I guess just like what your your initial impressions are. You've watched most of the Next Generation. How much? I forget how much original series you've watched. I've watched a handful of episodes of TOS. Not not really that much. I've watched the first three movies of TOS. I know I need to watch the next three at some point because they're supposed to be better. But the search for Spock was so rancid that it's kind of put me off of continuing, even though I know the next one is like one of people's favorites, you know? Um, yeah, but God, the search for Spock is just so bad anyway. <laughs> so yeah, Deep Space Nine, um, I'm enjoying it. I, uh, a lot of people I feel like told me that the first season is up and down and that's true, but it's like way, it's way more competent than like season one of TNG, you know, <laughs> um, like 
<laughs> I feel like the 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 biggest growing yeah. pains is like we're trying to figure out how to use these actors and not like we don't know how to write a episode of television. You know, sometimes the 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 plots they come up with, the ideas kind of are are silly. I think the I think the one board game episode is dumb. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, but <clears throat> like I generally liked it I, way more than like season one of TNG. And that's what I was like preparing myself for, basically. Uh, power rankings so far, obviously, Chief O'Brien, number one with a bullet. Um, Cisco in that very night, like also in the S tier, really liking Cisco. Really like, um, who's the other person I really like? Odo. Um, it's funny because Odo, yeah, Odo's Odo great. gets like an a plot in the first like 12 episodes of the season like odo is heavily featured and then like kind of slides a little more into like side character stuff for the back half of the season so it took me a second to remember oh right odo the best part of the show (laughs) yeah i think some of him becoming like uh uh um not as much of like a main focus of episodes is that the, I think they just figure him out early on in a way that they haven't with some of the other, like he's still going to develop, but I feel like they like have him. They like know kind of who he is and his role on the station. And so then they just want to like put him in the background to have these other main characters. They have to build, uh, build up, like give them the spotlight and then let them bounce off of Odo. Yeah. Um, it feels like, it feels like very early on they figure out Odo in the same way that like they figure out Data pretty early on in TNG. <clears throat> um and it's partly because like Odo and Data are such so much like outsiders. Um Yeah. And so in some ways it's like easy it's easier to like define them because they don't fit in. And like then you can sort of like slot everybody who you, you have to like work to develop the rest of the group who does fit in, you know? Um, yeah, because the the rest of the people are going to have so many more like connections to other people outside of the crew, whereas it's very easy to be like, Odo basically knows like the crew and maybe has like some pre-existing relationships with the Cardassians who used to be here. But like, that's about it. Yeah. Um, um, where, whereas like so much of the back half of the season feels like we really got to figure out what we're doing with Kira. Um. You know, because it feels like for the first half of the season, like all she ever does is like fight with Cisco. Um, and like, I think, like, <clears throat> I don't know if they know what they're doing with Cisco, but I feel like Avery Brooks knows what he's doing with Cisco enough that, like, mm. just having fights with Kira every week is like enough for his character right now, honestly. <laughs> Whereas, like, it feels like in the back half of season one, they're like, Ah oh, hell, we do not know what we are doing with her, and she's our first officer. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, I'm trying to think. Is there anything else? Um, I wish Dax mattered more. Um, Dax is kind of just woman right now. Yeah, and then you sometimes get this peak of like this weird like. Like, it's so funny to me how, um, one, like, 
I've seen stuff about like, oh, looking back on it, like Dax is a, a like interesting and good representation of like a trans person in TV. Um, and it's just like you can find old like magazines and zines and stuff from trans people back when this show is airing where people were talking about this. Like they knew they knew mm-hmm. what was happening there. Um, but it is like it's very funny because uh, the whole Cisco calling her old man thing, like the way that it play, like it on the face of it feels transphobic, but then the way it's played is like when you have that friend who's not really trans, but like you allow to also joke around and you're yeah. fine with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's so great where like. Right now, it's just small moments, but there's, like, a moment where, um, what, Bashir is all horny for for Dax, um, and she's like, I understand. I was a young man once, and I'm like, damn, nice. (laughs) (laughs) I love Dax. Um, I don't know if they'll ever, like, I feel like they don't quite, she never gets, like, quite as figured out as, like, Cisco. Hmm. Um, And I think some of that is probably just, like, uh, Avery Brooks is a black man who knows that he's playing a black star fr- uh, Starfleet captain on like a TV show and is able to like bring stuff to that. Um, I think this is whereas Ego, I don't. Sorry. I don't know if the actress playing Jadzia Dax is able to like fully bring other stuff to to develop what's interesting about like the the weird gender stuff going on with um, with Dax as like a symbiote. I think that like similarly. Um... I think this is maybe just symptomatic of like maybe like maybe like the writing staff of uh Star Trek at the time because like I'm in I'm in season 6 now season 7 of TNG and like they still don't really know what they're doing with Deanna Troy or Beverly Crusher um th- those two characters are carried entirely by the weight of like Marina Sirtis just being like very self-assured as an actress and like um uh, gates mcfadden just having chemistry with everybody else in the cast but like every time um those two characters are given a plots it's like for deanna it's like let's have her act out of character for for a week um and for uh for beverly it's just like let's just have her be a starfleet officer question mark (laughs) yeah um so i I think i think star trek at this time just doesn't know how to write women and is just like gotten lucky with the casting and i'm not saying that like the actress playing um jadzia is like a bad actress just that maybe like she doesn't know what she's doing with this character yet in much the same way that i think like you know it took yeah, I cast. think it took a lot of the cast a, long, a little while. And it doesn't help that they've given her very little material to work with. There's yeah. no character I outright dislike, though, which is good. I was worried I wouldn't like Bashir at all, but Bashir's fine. He's a dweeb. Yeah, he's he's definitely, like, uh, lower on mm-hmm. my rankings. but um, And I think it gets better as it goes on. I think there's some moments early, like in this first season, where... Uh, they're like winking and nodding at the audience. They know that they're writing a character who's kind mm-hmm. of shitty. Um, and sometimes you're like, okay, but like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you know, I, is the bit of we wrote the like young, uh, you know, cocky thinks he's the smartest, um, but we're aware we're doing it. It's just like, man, just give him something else interesting other than that. Yeah. Um, but definitely, I forgot how uh, early on the stuff with uh, Garrick, like Garrick, I think only shows up in that one episode, but the uh, extreme bisexual chemistry when mm-hmm. like <laughs> the two of them interact is good. That's going to continue to develop. Yeah, Garrick has extreme, um, like, guy who shows up in one episode of season one, but is going to show up in like seven episodes of season two energy. Um, yeah, I think, I think I like Bashir most when he's like having to interact with Garrick because there's just like this weird tension with them. Oh, (laughs) what other thing? Um, so the worst episode of this entire season, um, Q doesn't work if you take him away from Picard. Just like straight up. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> that episode's so bad. Q as a character <laughs> does not function if you take him away from Picard. Also, season six of TNG is the uh, first time since season one that they do two Q episodes. Because um, season one does two, and then the rest of them have done just one. Season five, no Q at all. So season six, they're almost making up. They do two Q episodes, and one of them is dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> um so it's really funny the way that like Q has like fallen from like oh man I wish Q was in this show all the time he's one of my favorites I love this dude to like yeah he's kind of hit or miss when he hits like nothing else hits like Q but you know when he misses ugh <laughs> ugh uh as someone who is who is not rewatched or like intentionally watched through all of TNG, <clears throat> who only saw it when it was on like syndication as a kid, um, but has watched Deep Space Nine multiple times, I'm just like Q. People like Q because <laughs> um, that episode is so bad. <laughs> um, I'm excited because I know there's like a really I, I know that. TNG ends on um, a good Q episode. So I'm excited for to have him redeemed in my eyes. Um, but ooh. also also Vash doesn't work yeah. uh, without Picard around. But like, that's fine. She's like a character who's shown up in like two episodes of TNG tops. I don't really like. <laughs> Meanwhile, Loxana, you can put Loxana in any show. You could put her in fucking Magnum oh, yeah. PI. Loxana works anywhere. <laughs> uh, Loxana bouncing off of Odo is great. I adore um, her. <laughs> she's just so horny for him, and, and he is just so deeply asexual and aromantic. <laughs> it's just so funny because when, um, so when I watched season one of TNG, M gave me, um. At, at my asking, a skip list. Um, like, here are the episodes you've got to watch. Here's the ones you can skip. And they're like, you got to watch that first on episode. And I was like, this is awful. This is one of the worst episodes of television I've ever seen. I don't know why you told me to watch this. I'm dying. I hate this. And then by, like, season three, I was like, Loxana is the best part of this show. Every time she shows up, I'm giddy. <laughs> and now I've seen her in this show, and I'm like... Damn, 
this bitch can do anything. <laughs> She's heir to the Holy Rings of Beta Zed. <laughs> anyway, you want to talk about movies? Um, sure. Oh, the other thing, uh, it partially just to like contain my movie moded, although not that much because. What happened, part of why I started watching Deep Space Nine is that sometimes I have like an hour before I'm done with work or something and I don't want to start a movie, but sometimes I don't want to listen to a podcast and that's where Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. slotted in. Uh, and now I'm just going anime mode because you're watching TNG. Once you get back to Deep Space Nine, I'll probably be watching along with that. But um, so I, I'm currently watching concurrently three different Gundam anime. <laughs> um, one of them is, is the uh, Gundam Witch from Mercury, which I'm not going to talk about really on anything. This is the first time I'm publicly saying that I'm actually watching that show because so far I've I've been watching it since the beginning, but just haven't been mentioning it. Um, but then the other two is uh, I started turn A and I, I'm watching that uh, with subtitles because I don't even think there is a dub. Um and then I also started watching the first Gundam series, like the original one, uh, which I've I've seen like parts of before, but I've never watched all of. And that one I'm doing as a dub, so that's my like while I'm at work and stuff. One. I um, <laughs> uh, I watched uh Gundam, like, I watched 0079 as a dub, and I that dub is like fine, you know. I feel like I know a lot of people who complain about it, um, and I get it, especially with like how those uh voice how the japanese voice actors become like so integral to the franchise and how you know you want to get to know those characters as they're going to carry forward for decades after this um i get it i watched the dub it was totally serviceable you know totally uh just fine in my eyes weird because they get a different dub cast for zeta which is the real shit (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, but then I got accustomed to the Zeta voice actors, and then they go back to the 0079 actors for Shars Counterattack. So it's kind of goofy, anyway. Uh, <laughs> none of this matters. Yeah, I I might if I'm like sitting down and I want to watch uh, 0079, um, then I'll probably switch it over to like subs, but. I, right now, I just want something that fits in, like, I can't, like, constantly actively watch the screen. Um, I can kind of look at it a little bit and have some subtitle, or have some, um, you know, listen to it and and all of that. And honestly, like, the first Gundam works fucking great for that, so. <clears throat> um, but I might switch back and forth a little bit, because I do have that option, but... Um, yeah, the other thing is, there's probably a bunch of anime I'm just going to start watching dubbed. I, I have often been resistant to dub stuff, um, but the truth is that, like, subs I just have to, like, actively sit and, and watch, um, and the main time that I do that is on my lunch breaks um, at work, I, I bike and then watch two uh, episodes of anime, usually for Ghost Divers, and then sometimes I'll watch something else when um, I don't, like, have ghost divers homework to do um but there's just some stuff that i i want to have seen but i don't care about that much like having done it with the subtitles um that i just feel like 
I should just do it dubbed so that I actually watch it rather than keep putting it off. So, um, and like first Gundam is something I would probably eventually get around to, to watching subtitled if I didn't do it this way, but I just, I'm going to watch it sooner this way. <laughs> I'm going to watch it at the same time as turn a, cause turn a, I, I don't think I can do dubbed. And even if I could, I, I think that one I would care more about, um, the subs for. So, um, yeah. Anyway, we can talk about movies now. Now that we're 25 minutes into this podcast. I have two movies that I can talk about from the Vampire Collection on Criterion, on the Criterion channel. Um, I think this is just kind of the two next ones that I had in line after The Velvet Vampire. And I think this is finishing out the 70s. There might be more 70s. I think this is it for the 70s, though. I guess there's a 79 one, but that feels more 80s because it's um, the uh, Jean Roland or whatever. I haven't gotten to that one yet. I started watching it while I was at work, and uh, it was in French, and there were subtitles, and I was like, no, thank no, you. No, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do subtitles at work. Uh, but I watched these two instead. Uh, so the first one here is Daughters of Darkness. Uh, this is Dutch, but it's it's in English. Uh, but it was like a Dutch director, and I think most of the cast is uh, Dutch, or this may be the, one of the guys is English. I know his character is, um, but in some ways, like <clears throat> this kind of reminded me of what was the name of the one I watched last time? The Velvet Vampire, um, in that it felt like it was trying to mix like uh, a certain like art film and then like exploitationy, uh, a little bit more raunchy horror film vibe. Uh, but I feel like this just like threaded the needle better. Um, and I think there's still a fair amount uh, of like dubbing after the fact. I just felt like it was handled better or something. It just worked more. Um, but basic uh, plot is uh, so there's this uh, aristocratic British guy uh, who just married this uh, woman named Valerie. I remember her name. I don't remember his name. Um, That's sexist. And. What? That's sexist of you. Mm. And misandrist. Very and, much so. Uh, you'll hear yes. from my lawyer. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they they uh, are traveling around Europe um, right after they got married. And they check into this grand hotel on the seafront in Belgium. Um, and they're going to take the ferry to England like the next day or two. Uh, and... After they check in uh, that night, the hotel's like basically empty because I, I think it's like winter or something. There's some explanation about why the hotel's empty, but it's basically empty. Um, but they get the like whatever fancy royal suite or whatever. I forget what the normal term is for that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, that night, um, a Hungarian countess comes with her uh, secretary, who's just like this very. Uh, young hot goth chick uh the the hungarian countess um is uh her name is elizabeth uh battery or however you say that last name um you know the the famous like actual alleged serial killer noble woman who 
like tortured and bathed in the blood of women or whatever. I'm not familiar with um, this story. What? <laughs> oh, you don't you don't no. know this? Uh so there there's a Hungarian noble, uh, noble woman who's believed to have been a serial killer and she thought that her secret to to like youth or at least the the folklore around her I don't know how much of this is actually tied to um what she did but like the folklore is that she would uh like get uh beautiful girls and like torture them and and then like drink their blood and bathe in their blood to to be Do more Do that beautiful. to me. Um <laughs> Uh, and like, this is one of the things that inspired, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, or at least it is believed to have inspired, um, his book. Um, but yeah, so, so she has the same name, um, and is this like older, but still like very beautiful blonde woman. Um, and they check in and they want that like royal suite or whatever, um, but the, the concierge who's like an old man now is like, oh, there's this honeymooning couple staying there. Um, so you can't stay there, but I think they're supposed to check out tomorrow. Uh, also you look really familiar when I was a little kid. I remember you coming here, but it looks like you haven't aged a day, you know, not suspicious anyway, <laughs> not suspicious at all. Um, so anyway, it, it like, escalates a thing that I really like about this movie that I think um, not a lot of vampire movies actually try to capture is this like sense of enthrallment that like when she is around people are like weirdly magnetically drawn to her and uh, seem weirdly susceptible to just like the things that she says uh, says um, like it it is like I think far more playing into the idea of like a vampire uh, having a thrall than some vampire movies do, um, which it, which is good because while there is some blood, I feel like they don't they don't like give you quite as much of the the bloody sex part of vampires, which is one of the other parts that I like about vampires. But they do give you yeah, this thrall part. They so had to get good. one kink in there. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, uh. There's like the the British husband is all anxious about um taking this woman back home and thinks that like his mother isn't going to like her. Uh there's the scene where he finally calls the mother and the mother is revealed to be like a an older effeminate gay man. Uh w- which nothing ever like develops further from that. It was just a bizarre scene. Um, I looked it up. It's like an actual film director who's playing this character. Uh, not the director of this film, but like a different director. Um, but, and then it, the, the thing about it is a lot of the beginning of this movie is you watch a lot of, uh, like European art films from the seventies and it's just like a man and a woman. And the man is like British with bad teeth and just like (laughs) mid in general, kind of a piece of shit like nobody really like the only reason that anyone would want to be with him (laughs) is that he's just insanely rich because he's just like aristocracy and then there's this like very conventionally beautiful woman uh with like long blonde hair who just seems like enamored with him um and they're just going around like in hotels and in cars and they're just saying things like I feel like I hardly know you, even though they just got married. And then the other one's like, 
while we're still getting to know each other and stuff like that. Um, and they just have these like sort of like meandering conversations about like the impossibility of men and women to understand each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, I've seen a, a, a bunch of movies like this and honestly, like uh, blow up at least gave me that cool scene where he was like, you know, looking at the the photos on the wall and trying to zoom in to solve the puzzle. Blow up is a, is at um, least about the like fundamental <clears throat> emptiness of these people and how they're all awful. <laughs> yeah, it, I guess um, a lot of these movies are about that. It's just that Blow Up is less na- uh, navel gazy about it. <laughs> Still don't like that movie, but you know. Um. Yeah, uh, and so I was like, oh man, this movie might suck. Um. And then sometimes this like uh, hot old vampire lady will show up and just like talk about, oh, I'm descended from the Elizabeth Battery. Like I have her name, but I'm not actually her. Uh, I was named after her, but oh, and then like recounts her murders and stuff. Um, And I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of fun, but like it's still just one of those movies. And then it takes this turn where, um, after calling, uh, mother, the, the British husband, just like, like domestic assault, like beats up the, the new wife kind of with like, without, uh, clear reasoning. And I'm like, Oh, it's going to be one of those fucking movies where it's just like, even more about how like men and women just fundamentally hurt each other. Um, and then, in a weird way, it just becomes Elizabeth, uh, the countess, like using her thrall powers to uh, one, like get her current thrall, the the goth woman killed by him, but then to show to the the like uh, wife how evil he is, and then they together kill him and get rid of the body. Uh, and then at the very end, this is full spoilers. Valerie, the the young wife, um, is is driving faster and faster in a way that is like very erotic. Of like, here's this like young woman in the front seat, and then in the back seat is the countess just screaming like faster, faster. Um, and they they crash, and the uh, Elizabeth gets impaled on like a tree branch hence being staked. Uh, and then the end of the movie is just Elizabeth, like having a bunch of thralls of her own um, and just going around being a like hot vampire. Fuck yeah. lady. Uh, and I was like, okay, one of these movies ending with like the wife kills the husband and uh, just like gets a bunch of thralls. That's okay. okay. Yeah, huh? <laughs> All right. <laughs> the hunger is still better, but like, <laughs> um, and I gave a B for the stairs mm-hmm. here, which so in the the hotel that they're often in, the the staircase is just like very ornate, very beautiful. There's some a few moments of like coming down the stairs and things, but nothing like there was no shot that like really used the stairs. Like it would be like, oh, she's running away because she just saw the husband like accidentally kill the the goth thrall girl. Um, and so you kind of get her running down and then you'll get like the very end of her running down into like the main, um, like 
uh, entryway vestibule or whatever. Um, but like, you don't get like her actually really running down those stairs in the way that I wanted. So that's why it's a B. It was like, you, you really could have done so much more with these stairs. They are very beautiful stairs and you never like really showed them or used them the way, um, that I felt like you could have, you had scenes where you could have given more attention to these stairs and you didn't. So that's why it's a B. Um, the other movie I watched is Blackula. Uh, very different <laughs> tonally yeah. from, uh, from this not one. Not terribly familiar yeah. with Blackula other than by like cultural reputation, but pretty different. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I, I'll go through less of the plot of this one. Um, in part because a lot of it, there's like a fair amount of this that is just, uh, very like heavily and like very loosely, um, I guess is what I'm trying to say, uh, adapting, um, the like Bram Stoker's Dracula, the original, uh, novel, even though like Count Dracula shows up in this, but then there's a lot of like equivalent stuff that's that's happening throughout uh i i would say the the plots mirror each other it's like poetry it rhymes um, thanks george but yeah but it starts out in uh like the 1700s or something um whenever i th- i think a little bit i don't remember exactly when dracula set after that but yeah it's like 1700s um and this african prince goes to Transylvania is trying to seek uh, help from Dracula to suppress the slave trade. And Dracula is like, no, I'm all about like enthralling people. I love slaves. Um, in a, in a scene that plays out pretty much how you would expect it to in a, you know, black exploitation film. Um, and so then count Dracula uh, overpowers um, the African prince and, uh, turns him into a vampire and locks him away in a coffin so that he will live forever and have to listen to his wife, uh, who he, who the African prince, uh, prince refused to sell to count Dracula die in the like room of starvation. He would have to like, listen to it. Uh, just like super, you know, none of this is fully depicted, but all of it is explained. This is what happens. Um, and then it skips to the 1970s when, uh, two gay men, um, who are repeatedly referred to throughout this movie as faggots show up, uh, purchase the, I forget if they purchase like all of, cause it's, it takes place in LA. So I think they are at Count Dracula's, uh, like castle. And I think just purchase the coffin, but the way it plays made me think that they are purchasing purchasing the entire castle. But I think it's just the coffin that Damn. they found, and they, sh- uh, yeah, because then I think that goes to L.A., which then mirror- mirrors the like shipping to the to the New World, um, or you know to to England, um, of the the coffin in uh, Dracula the novel. But anyway. Uh, once they get to LA, they open it, uh, and find Blackula in there and Blackula kills them and drinks their blood. Um, and then what spins out is like, there is, uh, so one of the friends of the interior decorators named Tina 
is there to mourn them and Blackula sees them and is like, she looks just like my Luva, I think was, was his wife's name. Um, Cause of course we're doing a Dracula thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then becomes infatuated with her, believes that she's the re- reincarnation of Luva. Um, and then she is somehow related to, or like her sister is married to or something. Um, uh, LA police officer. Um, and he's trying to solve the, these crimes because now there's this serial killer going around draining the blood of victims. Um, and then what ensues is just like kind of doing some of the, the uh, like you get um, your own like parallels with like, I think it's like Nancy uh, who's like the Lucy fill in here and stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's just, what I thought was kind of interesting about it is because they made one of the main characters a black man who's on the police force. Um, I feel like I've seen a number of black exploitation films where like the police are just unequivocally the the like bad guys, the people who are just there to like mess things up. And here it's getting into like a little bit more of the tension of like, oh, uh, if you have like information about this black Dracula, you need to report it. And then being like, but why would I go to the cops? Like they can like play with that tension a little bit more. Um, but for the most part, like the, the reason to watch this movie is that at the end, um, stairs, he, so he's down in the basement, uh, of a like fallout shelter. That's in the bottom of a, uh, apartment complex. um, and Tina uh, be- is enthralled now and g- walks all the way down the stairs. And you get her like slowly in a dream state walking down all the stairs in the the apartment complex. And then like down into the basement and then to the um, like the fallout shelter meets with uh with Blackula, uh, and then the police find, have like figured out where he is, where he's moved his coffin. And so they start running down the stairs. Uh, they go further into the, the, uh, whole like complex of fallout shelter, people running up and down stairs. You get Blackula throwing like cops into other cops downstairs so that they're like all falling down the stairs. Um, and you know, Oh, just a bunch of set pieces around stairs, uh, culminating in, uh, they finally, they kill Tina. And now that she's dead, Blackula is so heartbroken that like Tina, who he believes is the reincarnation of his like lost love. Um, he's so heartbroken that he walks up all of the stairs slowly to face the sun and die. Um, and then you get like, uh, practical effects, uh, like skin turning into like burning skull with like maggots coming out of the eyes down to like just the smoldering skull. Um, so as, as rank stairs, the stairs ruled. Fuck yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's exactly as fun as I remember it as a movie. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> speaking of S rank stairs, uh, so Molly and I watched a movie that uh, people who have listened to this podcast are probably familiar with called The Born Identity. Um, if never heard of it, <laughs> um, well, I okay. I'm imagining 
Because this movie came out in 2002, right? So it's like, to me, everybody on the planet knows the Bourne Identity. But like, let's say you're 20 and listening to this podcast. Maybe, maybe you don't know. Maybe you've seen the Bourne Identity, but you don't know. Like, you don't know. This movie was fucking huge. <laughs> this was the John yeah. Wick of 2002. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in that it was it was fucking huge. It was like the big uh, one where you're going to have like shootouts and stuff. Um, and also, I still haven't seen it. <laughs> um, so, like... It's funny because at the time, this felt like a sea change in action movie stuff. Now it just feels like, ah, we figured out how to take the stuff from the Matrix and make it, like, easier to to replicate a lot of. Um, so obviously, you know, the Matrix uh, redefined American action movies overnight. <clears throat> and... Um, the the matrix is also not an easy movie to just like rip off in many ways you know it is like there's a lot of like technical competence that went into the making of that movie um that just you couldn't like kind of required a like strong vision like the wachowski sisters had uh that you couldn't just sort of churn out a yeah. million of the matrix people certainly tried you know but um I feel like the Born Identity is the first one where they figured out, ah, here's how we can, like, actually make the Matrix easy to do. And their solution is to do a really bad job shooting the fight scenes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then and then Hollywood continued to do that. Um, it, it's it, it's. Matt Damon is not going to learn how to, like, throw a punch for this movie. We're not even going to bother to ask him mm-hmm. to learn how to throw a punch. Uh, we're not going to ask him to learn how to point a gun. Um, he clearly he clearly has no idea what to do with a gun in his hand. Um, <laughs> but, like, that's fine because anytime the... I feel like at the time this was known as, like, shaky cam. And it definitely... By the standards of its day, this is shaky cam. But... The thing to understand about the Born Identity is that actually in this movie, the camera is relatively still compared to the 20 years of action movies since the Born Identity. The actual thing happening mm. is the quick cuts and the like extreme like close up on a fist so that you don't actually like it becomes easier to fake things when it's that close. You know, if if. If yeah. Hong Kong action movies rely on the wide shot for you to see everything, uh, the Born Identity is going to shoot all this action stuff really fucking close so you can't actually tell what's going on, <laughs> you know, and and lots yeah. of quick cuts. And so it's actually the the what this movie gives birth to is known as shaky cam, but it's not actually that shaky in this movie. It's just every movie that comes out after this is going to okay, if we want to cover up for the actors not knowing how to fight, we're going to do these things that the Born Identity innovated, and we're also just going to shake it a bunch to give it a, like, handheld feel, even though, like, I guarantee you none of these things are actually shot on handhelds. 
Um, so, uh, the born identity to me has like a complicated like legacy. Uh, uh, not complicated. I think. Oh, that's a different movie. That's called the born legacy. Shut up. Shut the (laughs) fuck up. God, I hate you. <laughs> anyway, um, um, so so when we were putting this movie on, kind of in the back of my mind is like, man, I hate what the Born Identity did to action movies. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this, whatever. Uh, and then we watched it, and we had a pretty good time because like. The thing that this movie understood that has been forgotten by every movie of the last 20 years is that, like, Matt Damon is charming in this movie and doesn't tell a single goddamn joke. He just plays the character he is supposed to play. He is not, like, poking fun at himself or the situation. He's just playing the damn character and he is an actor. This is the thing he is trained to do, and he's pretty decent at it. And he just is charismatic because he's Matt Damon, you know, <laughs> like, and it's fine. Yeah. And there's like a a, a woman who is uh, playing his love interest, um, and she's kind of like not very interesting, but like it's fine. You didn't really. You just don't need all the quips. <laughs> you don't need the quips. This movie works because it is just two people in this dangerous situation being like, oh, fuck, we're in a dangerous situation. Shit, fuck. Ah, fuck. <laughs> you know, um, I really enjoyed the, the, the cast of this movie um, in a way I was not expecting at all. Um, uh, I just thought that, like, they just played the story straight and the movie is a lot better for it. Um, the other thing um, <clears throat> that I wish was the actual legacy of this movie um, is that like there's a car chase in this movie and it's fucking sick as shit because it's 2002. And so like American movies have been doing car chases for a long time. We're very practiced at it. We're very good at it. And like, even this is not like, this is not a innovative car chase. You don't see anything you haven't seen before. Nothing really blows up. No one's shooting really. It's just straight up a car chase. And that's perfect and beautiful. And I feel like we all spent the 2000s complaining about how every movie had to have car chases in them. And we didn't know how good we had it. Because now there will never be a car chase in a movie ever again. <laughs> um, and like, I don't know. I just, I thought the car chase was really good. And it's just like, ah, stunt drivers doing stunt driver things. This is just what American movies were for a long time. We were pretty good at this. <laughs> there's, there's like so much like action shit that's like actively bad in this movie that then to see a really good car chase uh, a really good, like, perfunctory car chase. Like, nothing flashy. It's just yeah. a normal car chase, and it's just a really good one of those. I was just like, oh, my God. I, this movie rocks. 
Um, yeah, I, uh, I've been complaining about this movie a lot. I really, really enjoyed it. You know, I don't know that I enjoyed it enough that I'm going to go watch the sequels. Um, cause I remember not liking them as much, but, um, really enjoyed this one. Um, other thing to say about it, stairwells, stairwells, um, a fucking S because one, there's a lot of them. There are so many stairs in this movie. There are like movies used to have there stairs. Are like five different spiral staircases in this movie. It's fucking sick. <laughs> um, two, the very first stairwell that is prominently featured. So there's like a there's like a bunch like in the car chase, the car. Uh, they're going down an alleyway in Venice. Uh, I think it's Venice. If it's not, it's like Florence. You know. Anyway. They're going down an alleyway, and they just see stairs up ahead, and Matt Damon looks over at his uh, girlfriend, and he's like, uh, there's going to be a bump in the road. And then they start driving the car down the stairs, and it's really fucking sick. Um, there's a couple other stairs that re- look really good. None of this matters, because the movie earned an S with its very first stairwell that it featured, where Matt Damon runs up the stairs. This dude turns around and starts firing an assault rifle at him. Matt Damon punches man in the nuts and throws him down the stairs. <laughs> and if you don't think that's an S, you're listening to the wrong fucking podcast. <laughs> Sounds like some good stairs. Also, the stairs are so ornate because it's like the it's like the US Embassy in Prague, I want to say. Um, but it's like a US embassy and so it's like so like tacky and gauche as it's like trying to mash up like American and like European like architectural styles and so it's like really ornate but then there's this like carpet that like ruins it. Um it's it's a really good set of stairs. Uh and once again, Matt Damon punches a dude in the nuts and then throws him down the stairs. Yes. <laughs> it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> Tell me about the Slumber Party Massacre. Um, Before I do, you reminded me of a thing that I got really annoyed with this weekend. Because uh, you were talking about, like you know, shaky cam and Hollywood action stuff. And then I started thinking about the MCU, the thing we like to rail against all Mm -hmm. the time. And I'm sorry, but uh, Emily has been watching uh, She-Hulk Attorney at Law, which I keep forgetting actually has Attorney at Law at the end of it. They're just doing the the Harvey Birdman thing, except it's not as funny. Man. Um, Harvey Birdman Attorney at Law is so much better than When does Stairwell's pivot to just watching Adult Swim? I I would watch uh, Harvey Birdman Attorney at Law on this podcast. There's a lot of Adult Swim I would not we, watch on this uh, podcast. When I say Adult Swim, I just mean Harvey Birdman and Space Ghost. Okay, yeah. N- those two Nia like enters. Um, Nia re-enters her weed era, and we just start watching Space Ghost every week. <laughs> um. Yeah, I would not do Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Oh, no. uh, Force. Anyway, I watched the finale of She-Hulk. Now, I didn't watch the show itself, but um, 
there's just some things I have to, to complain. So one, um, I, so it starts with like she's uh, there's some like legal thing where she she's been given an inhibitor to prevent her from trans transforming into She Hulk. So she's like uh, Jen, whatever his, her last name is. Um, I forget her last name because I only watched the f- the finale with Emily, um, and she's trying to look into um, like there's this group of people that have been working against her or whatever. Uh, some people go and infiltrate into it and it's just like the most ridiculous, like, um, you know, Oh, we're doing the whole like men who are shitty about women and are like incels or whatever, uh, thing with all the people meeting about how they hate she Hulk. Um, and then like, she shows up uh there's some person who she knows that i don't i haven't watched this so i don't know that character uh but then like the the person who is hulk king or whatever the the person who's been like working against her and hacked her phone or whatever again this is just stuff that i picked up from this final episode uh steals her blood and injects it into himself so that he can turn into a hulk because he thinks that he deserves the powers more than she does because he's worked for it unlike her who just got it because she's a woman um and then at this point uh jen who uh like she breaks her inhibitors so that she can turn into the She-Hulk and she's all upset that this is how they're choosing to end it. And so then she breaks through she literally breaks through the fourth wall and exits out of what you're currently watching and it like goes to the Disney Plus platform and then like swings down to go into the documentary series Marvel Studios Assembled where she then goes and is talking to the the writer's room for She-Hulk and is complaining about the end of the show that they've written. And they're like, well, this is just what we have to do because this is what Kevin says that we have to do. And, like, Kevin's in charge. We have to... Like, all these storylines work this way because (sighs) that's what Kevin wants. Uh, And you're, of course, thinking, oh, Kevin Feige. And so then she goes to meet with Kevin and it's just getting, like, increasingly weird and uh, sci-fi as she's going further into Marvel Studios. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then meets with Kevin, K-E-V-I-N, an artificial intelligence, like, uh, basically, like, um, GLaDOS, but, like, not as cool, but, like, hanging from the ceiling, like, watching all the movies on monitors. It's also kind of like Neo meeting the, uh, the architect or whatever, but also not as cool or interesting. Um, and K-E-V-I-N, the AI, Kevin... Uh, it's like, well, this is like, no, like getting into like ratings and them trying to like sell to the, no, this is just like the decisions that this, this AI has determined. Um, and she's complaining about like, oh, why does everybody have father's, uh, issues? Like, um, star guy, whatever his name is, the the one where you watched both of them for pop town funk. Like he has two fathers with two father issues. I'm not saying the Um, name specifically because (laughs) I have a customer who comes to my work. And when I ask him, what's the name for your order? He says the name of this Marvel superhero. And I refuse to say that out loud when I am handing him his mocha. I refuse to say it. I just am like, yeah, tall mocha. So I will not be saying that the name of that Marvel superhero on this podcast out of protest. I will not say the name. That guy can't make me. Of Star and Guy. No one else can. <laughs> um. Yeah, and it's just like, 
oh, complaining about like the they think that there needs to be oh so before she she breaks uh her her like uh inhibitor and breaks the fourth wall as well uh bruce banner shows up along with some other superhero who i didn't recognize because uh, they're gonna fight um and so she's like well this is annoying because like now bruce banner is gonna sweep in to like defeat my like villain like shouldn't i be the one who's like it's my story shouldn't it be me who who gets to like actually get that uh why do you just write everything where it has to end with like a bunch of people entering the scene to do a big fight uh and like they're just pointing out like all the annoying little story things Mm -hmm. but also in a way where the solution is we just have to tweak the formula a little bit because she's saying oh here's how to make it to make it a little bit more feminist basically yeah okay and so then she rewrites how to end it where it's going to be like more empowering for her as a character. Um, and, and K E V I N Kevin, the AI who determines the end of all stuff is like, uh, we, we've like fixed the thing that makes it so that you can do this. Cause I don't want you doing this again, but we have rewritten the climax, but because you came in here and did this, it's been happening in the background. And so you don't see any of the stuff that she does. Also, you need to transform back into your normal self, but do it off of camera because at this point we've already fired all, they don't say fired. They say they've moved the special effects team or whatever has moved on to another project, which means that they've this been is fired. This is the part that I saw. Uh, so I did do not it off have camera. all the context. Of, yes. Okay. Yeah, so there's all of this other stuff. Um, and uh, then she goes back and you basically just get the... You get the entire climax delivered as her saying what would be a better ending to a Marvel series than the one that you would normally expect to come from one of these things. Uh, and then goes, but you don't actually get to see that ending. She just explained to you what it is going to be. And now you just get to see the little bit of aftermath. And it, I like... Like Emily was like, this is what the show has been. It's like breaking the fourth wall and joking around with the stuff. But I like Marvel trying to like fold in complaints about Marvel into mm-hmm. like part of what Marvel is. It's just the fucking bleakest. Like I was just like annoyed watching this fine. Like like watching this finale. I was just like, this is so stupid. Like you don't get to do this. And then, like, keep making the same stupid shit. Yeah, so... Anyway. The the one thing is that maybe this is the... Marvel knows that something has gone wrong, that people are starting to turn on it, and they're trying to figure out how to do something differently, and hopefully they just crash and burn, is my hope. So... Um, I guess I have a couple thoughts. One, and I'm annoyed that I didn't think about this earlier, um... So this is not, like, a consistent thing with She-Hulk as a character in the comics, but definitely there have been moments in the comics, uh, particularly I'm thinking of, like, there's, like, the Dan Slot run, and then there's, like, one that, like, precedes the Dan Slot run. I don't, whatever. There, there have been various series where She-Hulk has Deadpool-esque, like, fourth wall awareness, um, which is like, yeah, it's which is its own can of worms because like Deadpool is a character in the in the Marvel universe who is like aware of his existence as like a uh, comic book character, and then like other characters are are like given this awareness over the years as like a um, oh wouldn't this be a funny bit? It's so successful with Deadpool, we'll just like incorporate this to other characters too sometimes. Um, 
And now, by 2022, there's various MCU characters, or not MCU, 616 characters that are running around, like, aware of their status as comic book characters as, like, a codified power one that can have. Like, you'll go on the Marvel Wiki and you'll see, like, super strength, super speed, fourth wall, fourth wall awareness, you know? And that's, like, just an annoying yeah. trend in the comics that has further pushed me away from the Marvel comics over the years. My radiator is kicking on directly to my right, so everybody enjoy that. I will do my best to noise removal it uh, in post, but no promises. <laughs> yeah, sorry if auto audio quality is not the greatest. Uh, my toddler it has a stomach bug, so we're recording remotely. Yeah. Um... So, like, I guess I should have guessed that, like, oh, She-Hulk, she has at times been, like, fourth wall aware in the comics. That's definitely the thing that they're going to hook into for this character in the show. And I, I'm annoyed at myself for not predicting that. Um, the thing that's really annoying, and I wish I had a better, like, a better person to cite for this, uh, because uh, I'm, like, very critical of Lindsay Ellis on, like, multiple levels but she's like the first person that observed this phenomenon and i'll like credit her with that uh until such time as i could think of someone better to credit <laughs> um, yeah that first person the first person who was aware of this phenomenon that made a video that i watched that made me me aware of this Lindsay ellis's video about the various um disney live action remakes in the ways that those incorporate heavy air quotes, feminist elements. I think you and I are both people who would say that a movie cannot be more or less feminist. It does not get, like, points that make it feminist or not feminist, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, so Disney live action, and I think Lindsay Ellis is also a person who thinks that. What Lindsay Ellis is pointing out is that the Disney live action remakes uh, often take these old Disney animated films that have gotten criticisms over the years for not being feminist, and we're going to incorporate, like, both, like, feminist ideas and also, like, winking critique of older Disney movies into these live action remakes um, in order to like you know there's a lot of things happening there uh, I think for Lindsay Ellis um, the thing happening there is that like um, by incorporating those things um, like I think sh the way she frames it is it's like it's a way of like soothing fans of like Oh, this thing you liked, you got older and realized it was, like, quote-unquote problematic, and now, um, like, we've given you this new version that is maybe critiquing that, and so you can feel better about your thing you're nostalgic for, you know? Um, yeah. And I think, that, I think that's definitely one of the things that's happening. I think maybe the other thing that's happening there is... And it sounds really egregious with this She-Hulk one, is that, like, we, Disney, are aware of your criticisms of our product. And so now we have brought your criticisms of the product into our thing. And so now you can own, like, 
now by like wrapping our hands around the criticisms, like, you know, you have to have those on our terms now. Like, anytime you're going to have this conversation where you're critical of our product, like, someone can say, oh, but She-Hulk was aware of those things, and She-Hulk is critiquing those things, and now you have to have a conversation yeah. on Disney's terms, you know? And it's, like, it feels like mm-hmm. Disney's sort of trying to, like, almost, like, limit the imagination of, like, what you can criticize about Disney um, uh, that's happening here. It's the thing, that, same thing that's happening um, in Space Jam A New Legacy, where, like, LeBron James is complaining about, like, <clears throat> algorithms uh, and, 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 like, the influence of, like, how how the, the, the modern movie, like, complex and, and how, oh, the algorithms are ruining the movies, and now you have to, like, argue with the movie in terms of this algorithmic thing, which is, like, one, probably not all that true. I don't think AI is actually writing this movie. I think people write these movies. Um, yeah. And two, sort of offers to you a, like, offers to you, the viewer, a very easy fix for, like, oh, well, we just have to have the AI stop writing the movies and the movies will get better. You know? Um, sort yeah. of, like, like, somehow makes you, as the consumer, implicit in the producer's, like, um, idiocy. <laughs> yeah. It's just dumb. It's, I hate it all. Well, and it, and it's a, it's a thing that doesn't, like, really question the, one, like, by, by having it be Kevin and you think it's going to be the executive producer of the show, Kevin Feige, and instead it is this, like, AI is, like, one, like, on one hand, you could say it's making a joke of it, but it's also, like, actually removing it from the actual structures of production by having it be, like, oh, here's this, this like, uh, AI who sits up in a room and, like, determines everything. Um, and then also it, like, the the solution that is provided by She-Hulk is not, like, a, a change in the, the way that these are produced. It's not, like, a, a change in... It's not a... We need, like, an actual greater diversity of, of stuff outside of just the MCU as, like, the only blockbuster thing uh, that is, like, seeped into how we make television and it is seeped into how we make, like, all sorts of mm-hmm. things now. Uh, the MCU's just become everything. It's not in any way, like a critique of those issues it is oh we just need to figure out how to make the plots better right you know we just need to figure out how to do the better ending that's going to be more satisfying um which is just feeding into like no the ai just needs to recalibrate its algorithm to uh appeal to the new critical tastes that say that the way that we're doing things right now is getting tired and boring and so we have to change we have to mix it up a Mm -hmm. little um and that's like that's radically different than what I think we would <laughs> talk about being like the core issue, which is just the that like literally the people like the the production mechanism for all of this stuff has become so intensely homogenized and like monopolized mm-hmm. in like a, a very capitalist yeah. sense. Um which ties into another rant that I'm not gonna get into right now that I've kind of had within me for a while now, just about like uh 
we need a national archive is really the thing. Like we need a good nationalized, uh, like paid for, uh, archive of, of like media, uh, that like is able to just stream stuff for everyone or like provide that sort of mm-hmm. access, maybe do streaming for stuff that's higher end and like more sought after and then like disc stuff. But that is like operating in that mode of like libraries, yes. you know, where like it is, it is like free and anyone can access it. We need that, but like in a very archival, like all, all media, we need to like be doing that with film and we need to have those mm-hmm. films. Like right now it's in the hands of different companies and, um, I know that sometimes I have the push for, this is how I, I thought of this for man. It was so great back in the early days of, of Netflix when they basically just had every single disc and you could just have them send it to you. But what I don't actually want is for Netflix to have a monopoly on media right. archival preservation. Right. Um, I am just missing the the simplicity of that, but wishing that there's like an actual archival solution mm-hmm. for this. Um, Cause otherwise, uh, Warner Brothers is just going to decide that they don't want to do cartoons anymore and all of it's fucked or whatever, you know? Right. And like, you know, I think the closest thing we have to this is the Internet Archive, uh, which is like actively being besieged by capitalist forces, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, to like to rewind to She-Hulk just a little bit here, like. Like, this is literally like what Marx is talking about with what he talks about, like alienation is like. One, we're, like, alienating, like, the laborers, the the CGI workers from the products of their labor by, like, you know, one, both, like, firing all these people (laughs) immediately after they finish their, like, extremely stressful jobs. And two, um, then, like, poking fun at them in marketing materials and the show itself. Uh, The other thing that's being alienated here is that, like, you, the person, like like viewing this product is alienated from the means of production of the, by the product itself. Like the product itself is trying to obfuscate from you the means of production. Um, because if you were aware of those things at all, while you're watching it, you would just be sickened, <laughs> you know? Yeah. The joke is that the, the, the project team that does the, the like visual effects has just moved on to another project, which that wording suggests to you that like, we've just shifted them on to the next series Mm -hmm. and not the actual probably reality, which is that like anytime one of these finishes, there's a bunch of animators who are out of work and looking for their next project. And maybe they're going to get it back at MCU. Like, you know, I know people who work for a studio and do work where sometimes they're out of work, but like, Eh, that company still might call them back. There's a higher chance because they've worked before, but like that doesn't mean you aren't still out of work mm-hmm. for a while. <laughs> um, so, but you know, they're just they moved on to another project, so you got to transform off. You know, you're really expensive. Please do that. Now you can keep animating me, the artificial intelligence K E V I N. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, anyway. um. Stupid. stupid you have two more uh, movies and we're the, an hour in the one thing i will the one little thing i will say that is nice uh is and i think they're probably just directly parodying like i haven't seen uh the old 70s hulk show or something they do a parody of like a uh old intro for the the show 
um, about her, like what happened and being an attorney and stuff that felt so much more spot on than the WandaVision stuff uh, in terms of like them actually nailing the way that they would frame things and cut things together. Um, And my guess is it's probably just a direct parody of an old 70s Hulk thing. And that's why they were able to do it correctly is because they're directly parodying something. Um, anyway, other two movies I watched. Um, so there's the Slumber Party Massacre. Uh, I, I watched this because a while ago I watched Slumber Party Massacre 2. Um, and so I figured I'd watch the original since I hadn't before. Uh, this was like an extremely by the numbers um slasher movie i i i think this one's also still kind of considered like a a more feminist take on it um and part of it is like you still have the drill representing this like uh penetrative act that the serial killer is using and then it ends with um the drill being like cut off with a machete and the the attacker looking all horrified um and then like three women killing him uh, so that's still kind of cool, but like, it's like an hour and 15 and I was like, this could have been an hour. <laughs> you could have tightened this up. Uh, this is so like, for the most part, just by the number slasher, um, that, yeah, I, I, en- I ended up liking the second one more after seeing this just because the second one is so like weird and goofy in the way that they are just using it to give you funny special effects and the way that the like murderer is this like rockabilly guy who does musical numbers as he's killing people like all of that stuff is fun um it i still don't like super love slumber party massacre 2 it's no black christmas but um you know i I would watch it over this one i think slumber party massacre 2 uh had a lot more charm i think to to what it was doing um and I gave it D for stairs because you do get a few scenes uh, on stairs, but it's uh, Sir River and Home stairs, and they're not that good of scenes. And we just we don't we don't give out good grades for suburban home stairs here unless you like really mm-hmm. really nail something with it. Um, and even then, you're still maybe getting an A plus, <laughs> like at most. I don't know if you've ever done S for suburban home stairs. Um, the other one that I watched is The Hidden. Uh, Oh, both of these are in the 80s movie collection on the Criterion channel. Um, And this one I I hit play on just because I was scrolling through being like, eh, like, I know so many of those vampire movies. I've seen them before or I am familiar with them if I haven't seen them. Um, There's a lot of 80s horror that I just don't know that well. And so I was scrolling through being like, let me just look at the pictures and just like the times and just get a vibe for one to watch while I'm at work. Uh, and I saw our boy Kyle McLaughlin and yeah. without thinking, without, uh, investigating any further, just it's eighties. That's Kyle McLaughlin. I'm hitting play. Uh, I had a blast. This movie is really fun. Um, the, some of the, some of the stuff is like spoilers, but not intensely. So, um, you find out very early on that uh, so there's a series of like crimes that involve like killings, but also involve um, like thefts and things like that. Um, and you you discover early on that it is like a body snatcher style alien who possesses people 
and is going around in their body and just like anything he wants, he will take and anybody who's going to try and stop and like step in his way or its way, I guess. Um, there is a most of the bodies that you see uh, that alien inhabit are male, but there is uh, later on in the movie, a female body. Um, I still feel like they refer to you often as anyway. Um, but yeah, that, that alien, uh, will just kill anyone who stands in his way and, you know, uh, is going around terrorizing the city. Um, and, uh, this FBI agent rolls in to help out the LAPD. I think this takes place in LA. Um, and you have like the, the like really tired cop who just wants to go home to his family. Um, and, uh, this FBI agent just rolls in the town and he's kind of a weird guy. Uh, but also he seems to know a lot about this case and also have like a really good intuition around things. And he's played by Kyle McLaughlin, uh, in sort of a, a proto Dale Cooper, but weirder. Uh, I feel like this movie is, so I looked it up and the, the only other two movies that, uh, Kyle McLaughlin has credits on before this as like a, a significant role is Dune and Blue Velvet. And so I feel like this movie is playing on even though Dune, not to some of the extent of like, and even Blue Velvet as some of David Lynch's other works, he's still a director who like wants awkward performances out of actors a lot. And that still happens in both of those movies. Um, and so I feel like they are kind of banking on that, where this is the only context that you've seen Kyle McLaughlin is in David Lynch movies. And so if we have him acting weird and awkward in this movie, you might more easily write it off as, oh, Cal McLaughlin is just like that. He just plays characters like this who are kind of weird and awkward. Um, but uh, it's revealed, you know, this is the the one that's a little bit more of a spoiler, but I feel like you, I picked up on this very early on. Cal uh, McLaughlin is a different species of uh, body snatcher alien, but is also a body snatcher alien who's trying to kill the other body snatcher alien. Um, and what ensues is a weird buddy cop movie with uh, an alien inhabiting the body of Cal uh, McLaughlin. And then just this like tired cop, and the dynamic with them is, can, is like, really fun at times. Um, just seeing, like, Kyle McLaughlin be this, like, awkward, strange guy is great. Uh, I love it. Um, and I'm not going to spoil the ending here, but I can tell you off mic, Autumn, if you want to know how this ends. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, totally. Uh, I do encourage people to go watch it. Um, but, yeah, I, I can tell you off mic because it's it's... I was laughing so hard at like the feel good ending quote unquote. Um, it's wild. People should watch it. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it also, it was funny cause I, I started up it being eighties horror and it just starts with like a car chase. Um, and like a crime happening. And I'm like, when is the horror going to happen? And then pretty soon after like a, a weird slug monster with uh warning, if anyone's going to watch this movie, when the, when you first see the body snatcher alien, um, it starts coming out of a man's mouth. And um, it's like legs do look kind of like spider legs at first. I was afraid it was going to be more spider like, but it's more of a slug. Um, but yeah, it was, that was like, ah, uh, so that'd be my one forewarning is you'll know when a, a body snatcher is about to come out of a man's mouth, but, um, yeah, maybe close your eyes if you don't like spiders. Duly noted. Um, 
Yeah. Otherwise, fucking fun. Uh, and I gave this a C plus. Um, there's some good like running up and down stairs. Uh, I think they're just like basically apartment complex stuff, and it's not really doing that much like innovative or interesting with it. Uh, there's a part where Kyle MacLachlan is running downstairs because um, he shot the the other body snatcher alien and thinks that the alien is going to come out, and yet once the alien comes out of the body, there's a different gun that he can shoot the body snatcher alien with to kill it. Um, but only when, when it's out of the body and is running down the stairs to try and get it. Um, and, but most of that running down the stairs, you don't actually see him doing it. You see other action that's happening at the same time. So I would have liked it more if you just, you just saw him running downstairs, but, um, so yeah, C plus. Those are Those some movies. Are some movies. Should we uh, get into Laura? Did I have anything? David Lynch before we got to Laura. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have any. <clears throat> um, I felt like I had. I'm excited for Twin Peaks. I am Peaks. too. I'm, I'm excited for us to get I am there. too. Um, That's next I week. Find my, I find my thoughts... Uh, turning to twin peaks often lately so i'm excited to to watch mm-hmm. this um just watch the pilot just get back in it you know um yeah anyway so yeah laura 1944 uh noir film directed by um otto preminger who is like a titan of the noir genre um in a lot of ways yeah. um let me see what else he's directed i mentioned i recently watched um where the sidewalk ends. He also directed, you know, Wikipedia is not going to be as helpful for me as Letterboxd because Letterboxd is going to sort by um, <laughs> popularity. <laughs> uh, let me just see what else he's directed because I know there's a couple other like big ones. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, Anatomy of a Murder. That's like the really big one. <clears throat> oh, that's yeah. like people know that movie uh, like. Yeah, Anatomy of a Murder is his big one. Anyway, now I have to I have to double check something while you start talking just to to see if this is correct. But. Yeah, so um, comes out like during the war. Um, is ends up being a huge influence on Twin Peaks. Um, I'll, you want me to just like do plot summary while you look look stuff up? I I, okay. I found it. The Anatomy of a Murder. I, I wanted to make sure. Uh, yes, this is the movie that was uh, shot in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where I went to undergrad. Um, the The court scenes are actually like the courthouse in Marquette. So, huh? Um, yeah. Um. So, I should rewatch Anatomy of a Murder. I, you watched that in during the run of this podcast. I feel like I did. I don't think I did. I feel like you did. I'll I have, have to a, double check, but I want to watch that memory movie. The good. <laughs> of like being at a gas station and calling you and you telling me the plot of Anatomy of a Murder. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. Okay. I did. Well, uh, that's just that's that's. Uh, I'm David Lynch now, and I'm just going to make a movie where one of the, I'm just going to have like six ideas and just throw them all into a stew pot, and one of the ideas is. A memory of being at a gas station while someone else tells you the plot of a movie. 
<laughs> anyway. <laughs> let me let me see if I have star ratings for Anatomy of a Murder. Because if I don't, I haven't watched it like within the last two years. Anyway. You do not. So you marked it as watched, but you did not um, give it a star rating. So anyway, <laughs> what a weird tangent. Laura, um, <clears throat> so Dana Andrews is playing a private detective investigating the murder murder of Laura Hunt is her name. Um, she is a um, like young professional woman in the world of advertising um, who is murdered one evening um, with like two rounds of buckshot to the face. Um, and so Dana Andrews is a private eye investigating this. Um, he... Um, I guess the easiest way to talk about this would be talk about we're introduced to the various like people in Laura's life, aka the suspects. Mm-hmm. We are introduced to Waldo Lidecker, the guy who I thought it was too obvious for him to be the killer, which meant that it ended. And so I guessed it wasn't him because it was too obvious. It was him in the end. Uh, <laughs> Waldo Lidecker being um, this like older guy who writes a column for like not the new york times but might as well be the new york times um uh he writes a column he does a radio show um where he seemingly it may be just like a way you could be this in the 50s and you can't now is just like no these people still exist um is just like a writer who will just write about like this week, I reviewed a restaurant. This week, I reviewed an art gallery. This week, I aired my grievances with this person in my column. <laughs> this week, yeah. I decided to, to dip my toes into journalism by reporting on a murder. <laughs> um, the, yeah. These people still you exist. You used to get paid 50 cents a word uh, for writing stuff like this because newspapers just, they had it they back had then. They had it. Um... 50 cents a word, 1944 yes. money. So, Waldo Lidecker, very successful man at the top of his field, uh, older man, meets Laura, and, like, she's, like, an intern, basically, at this ad agency, and basically, like, um, decides she has spunk, and so he, like, sets her up with a career, but mostly because he wants to fuck her. Um, Laura being a, this is really important, a 17-year-old, um, <laughs> Laura, yeah. um, like, starts to meet other men. He, Waldo Lidecker is not happy about this. One of the other men that she meets is, like, this painter who does her portrait that's going to feature prominently in the movie. And Lidecker, like, writes a column about how his paintings are awful, basically. Um, the most recent man that she's met is... Lord, I don't remember his character's name, but I do know that he's played by Vincent Price in a role where he is barely recognizable as Vincent uh, Price. Shelby Carpenter. Shelby Carpenter. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so, uh, yeah, she meets uh, Shelby Carpenter and she's like, 
fascinated by him and wants to get married to him, but he's kind of he's kind of like a Gatsby of like, is he actually rich? Is he like actually destitute? Um, can't really tell. Is he interested in me? Is he interested in every woman in town? Is he fucking them? Can't tell. Don't really know what his deal is. Do want to marry him? I don't know. <laughs> um, and other people in the uh, other people in the cast include like uh, Anne Treadwell, who is like one of the women one of the women that um, Shelby Carpenter is definitely fucking. Uh, who she like is like. Maybe in one scene, like, oh, maybe I'm the killer because I was just jealous that uh, Shelby was going to marry you instead of me. Um, and I think that's about it for the people that matter. This is not a long movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like we got a couple other. Uh, there's like multiple names that are taken from this for. uh Twin Peaks, usually as, like, minor characters, but, like, both Walder and Lydekar, I think, get used. Obviously, Laura yes. gets used. Um, Jacoby gets used. Jacoby is, like, a doctor who shows yes. up briefly in this movie. Yeah. It's, like, Jacoby or something yeah. in this, but, yeah, Jacoby gets used. Um, <clears throat> I feel like there was one other one that I noticed, but, um, yeah. Um. So, yeah, um, Dana Andrews plays this, like, very, like... <clears throat> stoic detective who's who's kind of doing a little bit of a Columbo where he's like going around to all these like kooky cast of characters asking a bunch of questions and like where where some where your Poirots of the world might like you know tell people like oh I'm thinking maybe this like you might get a little bit of the like what the detective's thought process is and like maybe the detective is like you know leading leading the reader in a, in a certain direction um Dana Andrews character is very just like tight-lipped he's going to ask a bunch of questions he's going to notice a bunch of details but you're never going to be quite sure what he's going to do next you know you don't know like this de- yeah. oh you, i he's noticing a detail here but i don't know where that detail is going to lead him you know so he's yeah. follow- he's investigating this murder and he is getting like more and more involved he's like he ends up like sleeping at laura's apartment and reading through her diary and all these things laura's diary yes laura's secret diary (laughs) um and one night he's sleeping in her apartment and she comes home uh yeah uh, and it makes that notably it shows him falling asleep it's like him in the chair with the painting that he's put a bid in on, uh, you know, Waldo Lydekker has accused him of falling in love with this corpse. Um, (coughs) Zooms in on him very clearly has fallen asleep, zooms back out. And then she comes home. Um, And so, and I want to talk about this movie on its own terms, because I just really enjoyed this movie in a way. I enjoy a lot of noir of this era, but just to talk about Lynch for a moment. So we've talked about on the show, like he has this like process where he like will have dreams and ideas and sort of like puts them into like a stew pot and like stirs it around and sees what comes out. He He's talked about uh, in making Blue Velvet, he like had this sort of fantasy of like, oh, 
what if I was like peeping on a girl and then I saw a crime happen? And that's like the sort of like idea that gets thrown into the pot that sort of like becomes blue velvet, you know? And so you very Mm -hmm. easily see like detective who ends up like interested in the girl in like a romantic way that translates like very directly to what Twin Peaks is going to become, you know? And like, Mm -hmm. I know I don't having, having a portrait of the girl that becomes like weirdly central gets shown a lot. And then there's a lot of like different people talking about their idea of who that girl was. Mm. Um, That gets thrown into the, yes. And then I like, the the pivotal scene where it's revealed that Laura is still alive, like there's a moment where it's unclear if like um, Dana Andrews' character is dreaming or not because he falls asleep and you zoom in real close on him and then there's a sort of like he's in like the dark because it's like raining and nighttime, but when it cuts to Laura, like the part of the wall that she's against is like really bright in a way that feels like it's in a different room. And so there's like a brief moment of unreality when you first see um, her character in the movie. Uh, And you just like the detective has a dream where the woman is still alive and he talks to her um, and the, the, the the murder is revealed. That's a thing that happens in Twin Peaks. (laughs) Anyway, moving forward. Um, Laura being alive introduces like 40 new wrinkles in the plot and things just keep escalating, 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 escalating. Eventually, it seems really likely like the the movie sort of like masterfully moves you into, I think Laura is the murderer. Um, but that is actually Data Andrews character being like, I was 99% sure it wasn't you. I just needed to get rid of that 1%. So I needed to like press you really hard and make you think that I thought that you were the murderer, you know? Um, Yeah. And eventually, uh, like, basically, Dana Andrews realizes it has to be Lidecker um, because Lidecker is like the jealous lover and he's going to arrest Lidecker in the morning but like you just get some rest, Laura, and we'll this will all be taken care of in the morning. Um Lidecker hears this and hears like that um Laura kisses Lidecker um or Laura kisses Dana Andrews uh on his way out and, and Lidecker can't stand this, so he gets the he gets the gun and he's gonna come after her again. But luckily Dana Andrews and the rest of the police save the day. Um, and, uh, it's, it's all good. Um, a much less tidy ending, I think, than like, um, say like the Raven had, you know, (laughs) a movie of like a very similar period where it's like, and then nothing bad ever happened. It's like this movie ends on, um, Lidecker like shot in her living room and like Laura's going to be a little fucked up about that. I don't think the movie leans into it, but I don't think it like shies away from this was all a little much. You know, this was a lot to handle. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I really fucking liked this movie because I like 40s noir movies a lot. And this was a particularly good one. <laughs> uh, I have thoughts, but I've been yeah. talking a while. So I want to open up the floor to you if you have like things you want to say. Um. Yeah, I 
one is like I so when I first watched this movie and was like, oh, we should maybe do this, like, especially if we're gonna do Twin Peaks, it would be fun to go back to it. Um, but when I first watched it, I I watched it while I was building Gunpla because noir movies are often the kind of movie that is very easy to put in uh put on in the background and uh listen to and uh look at sometimes and you will often get like a fair amount of it. Um in this way that like I will just sometimes watch things when I'm at work or whatever. Um, This one like really benefited in the way that I'm not sure is true of all noir movies um, from just like watching the actual, like just constantly paying attention to it. We we were, you know, fully paid attention um, because there's so much camera movement here that feels like, Somewhat unusual for the forties. Yeah. Um there and it like that was just uh incredible. The 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 way that like frames are constant like uh an image is constantly being framed up so that you will see like here's you know the the painting of Laura in the background and then this figure in the foreground or whatever, like having different things on various planes. Um and then we'll have like a character move and the camera will move and follow them to a different frame mm-hmm. image where that character is now there. Uh, the like amount of blocking tape that must have been like on the ground for these these shots. <laughs> Fucking insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's incredible. And like, uh, it's not all like often. It's just the camera turning, but there are points where like they dolly it around and mm-hmm. stuff too, which is which was incredible. And it's and it's um, like. The, the sorts of camera moves that, like, are not... If I just watched this movie, and, like, all the, I'd only seen movies that had come out since the time I was born to now, and I watched this, I'd be like, okay, that was a pretty good movie. But, like, if you watch a lot of others' 40 movies, there, there's just an agility to the way the camera moves uh, in this that is, like, fucking stunning, you know? Especially, yeah. like, you know... This is still three years after after Citizen Kane, and like I think this is like, it, it, Citizen Kane is like such a huge sea change um, in like what American movies were, and I can already see so much of that sea change in this movie in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and the camera work is just one of them, you know. Yeah. Yes, some of this movie does feel like oh, Citizen Kane happened, and like what that meant for in the way that you were talking earlier about the matrix of like, people aren't going to do, can't do citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a, uh, a vision there. There's a, a budget there. There's like a, um, there's a lot of stuff going into making it look exactly like citizen Kane where they're not going to like, they're, they're going to find the ways to do some of that stuff for cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're still going to get in some really interesting, like, movements and and framing things and all of that so um yeah i i loved this movie so much more the second also i think that this movie benefited from me knowing the whole shape of it yeah for sure um where i was less trying to figure out who is the killer and i was more able to just enjoy the the way that everyone is kind of um interacting with the idea of Laura and then the actual woman when she arrives. Um, and the, the way that like 
Waldo Lydecker, like, fully gives stuff away early on, but tries to, like, in his, like, bravado that makes sense for the character, is, like, kind of willing to to let some things fly uh, with the, like, self-assuredness that it's going to be fine for him. Um, and that, like, you as the audience will kind of write him off at a certain point. Yeah, like, like um, I say, like, I, I thought it was so obvious that he was the killer that it couldn't have been him, you know? Yeah, it, there had to be a twist. And actually the twist is that no, we're going to lead you down this other path, but as it was it was really Lightacker the whole time. Yeah. Um Yeah. I, it, it the, the other stuff that I loved in this too uh was so like there's the part where um Dana Andrews uh, Mark I think is the name of the detective that he's thank playing. Thank you. I've been trying uh, to remember goes, that the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's Mark and then like another M something. It's like Mark mix something. Yeah, that I sounds right. Um, but the first time that he goes to see Waldo, and we'll see Waldo in the setup other times too. But like his office is he like sits in a bathtub on like a typewriter, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just like such a ridiculous affectation. Um, this is a, a rare noir movie where part of me wished that there was color at points uh-huh. because just seeing how gaudy his space is in full color would have been great. All these rich people live in the tackiest fucking apartments that I wish I yes. could see in like the full color, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Like the black and white can gives this a sense of like class that I just don't think is like true to life, you know? <laughs> these people have yeah. awful taste. Um, delightful movie. Um, yeah, to, 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 um, for me, like, there's a, you talked about this sort of like, um, like, I just really appreciate like the craft in this movie, you know? Um, and you talked about that. Yeah. In the moment that it really comes together, and I almost wish that the whole movie was this in the way that the whole movie, like all of Citizen Kane is this, but we only get the one section of it for this movie, is Lidecker recounting, like, here's been my relationship with Laura over the years. <clears throat> and the movie does a really good job. It's very deft about this in a way that I don't even know... Like, I don't even know how much the, um, like, the average person just, like, watching this movie might pick up on. Because Kane draws attention to this, and I think this movie is also doing this, but, like, is is way more subtle about it. It's like, you're not getting Laura as, um, as Lidecker talks about his memories of Laura. What you are getting is his version of Laura. And so, like... Before before you get him telling these stories, earlier than that, you get him saying, well, she thought the world of me. She thought I was the, the kindest and the funniest and the smartest and the this and the that. Um, and it's like so patently false, you know, like, like yeah. Dana Andrews and and you, the viewer, are not supposed to believe this. This guy is such an, a self-aggrandizing asshole that like there's no way Laura thought the thought these things of him you know um yeah and so 
then move forward like 10 minutes in the movie and he's we get this like lengthy like flashback sequence as he like recounts his relationship to Laura and his relationship to Laura's career and how oh she was always grateful for how I did everything for her and she really she wouldn't have gotten anywhere without me and um blah 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 and it's so like insidious I I asked you at one point <laughs> during this bit um before I remembered Citizen Kane like had Rashomon come out before this movie? Like, is this movie doing a Rashomon? Because, like, this is so clearly, like, his version of her. And I think the other thing that I really liked about that is that it's, like, clearly his version of her is, like, conveyed through the script and the acting in a really good way. But it's also just conveyed through, like, I think it does a really good job of conveying it through the editing and the through the, like, <clears throat> like montage in like the classical sense of like the way that Eisenstein throw around montage to mean literally any type of editing. <laughs> yeah. Um, the way that one memory like sort of fades into the next. Um, whereas like this is usually like a very like strict continuity editing movie um, in these flashback scenes, things fade one into the next because like, that's kind of how memories are is like things blur together, you know? Um, and sort of like very subtly undermining like the believability of this like you know literally the unreliable narrator you know um yeah i i just i just the craftsmanship that's going on in this movie i just think is like fucking superb you know um yeah, yeah it, it, it is still in the the mode of citizen kane where, like, I think one of the, the things that's so different with, or, or at least at the time felt so different for people with Rashomon is that Rashomon is willing to show you completely contradictory images of the exact same event. Mm. Whereas, like, Citizen Kane, you're getting lots of different images of this person, but all of them are stories and the... The way that they are interpreting the stories are certainly called into question, but, like, what you're seeing is never... Uh, as radically challenged as being like contradictory. Um, everything in in Citizen Kane is like you're seeing different moments, and each person got a different piece of this man. But like they saw those moments, and the the moments that you see are presented as being fairly factual. Um, mm -hmm. even if the way that they're interpreting them is not necessarily factual, it is like, oh, here's the view that this person got. And that's kind of what this, I feel like is pointing to with like Waldo Lydecker's thing of like, oh, here's the interactions he had. He's also doing the unreliable narration, but like as voiceover in the, the very noir way. Yeah. Um, maybe whereas Rashomon becomes slightly. The the thing that was like so radical for people with Rashomon was that you literally just saw like filmed a depiction of an event and then they filmed it again as being a completely different mm -hmm. thing where like a to such a degree where it's not even small details, it's like a different person killed them. Yeah. Like there's a different you know, murder. The, the, <laughs> um The thing that comes to mind maybe is that like Citizen Gain, like in novels, like um I can think of a of a novel that had an unreliable narrator in the same sense as Citizen Kane having one, like, all throughout the 19th century. Like, I think of Wuthering Heights, Dracula is arguably this, Frankenstein is definitely this, and those are just, like, 
the three that I've read because I don't really read that many 19th century novels. Um, and so I think like Citizen Kane and, and by, by extension, Laura is sort of casting back to the to the way that a novel might portray an unreliable narrator of like, I'm giving you the events, beca- but like <clears throat> I'm giving you a, a, a shady interpretation of the events. Um, whereas like Rashomon, um, Rashomon is like fundamentally playing with the idea of truth in cinema um, in the in a yeah. way that like Citizen Kane like approaches but just doesn't get to uh like like there is just a cinematic way that yeah. Rashomon is doing this um that is just so unique for its time you know yeah um especially um, especially a yeah, time C- period Citizen Kane is Sorry. like Citizen Kane is like uh if I do a documentary I no matter how much I shoot, I'm always showing you like uh, only a certain amount of the truth of the thing. The truth of the thing is always going to be more than what I can show you. Uh, and Rashomon's like, no, I can outright lie to you. <laughs> I can just tell you lies. I can come up here and lie to you. <laughs> can I? Um, can I really crawl up my own ass for a minute? <laughs> can sure. I just like fully? Um. It's our podcast. We can we can crawl up our own asses as much as we want. So, <clears throat> I don't know the first goddamn thing about paintings. <laughs> um, I had a teacher in high school, a Spanish teacher specifically, who, like, had minored in art in art history in college, basically, and so she, um. I, and I had this teacher for four years of high school. Uh, I re- I really liked her. She taught she taught Spanish, but she minored in art history, and so there was a lot of like every year we would spend like a week talking about like various like um, <clears throat> painters from Spanish speaking cultures like throughout history, basically, you know. Um, and so yeah. various Spanish painters, Mexican painters, um, you know, South American painters, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that always, like, sticks with me um, uh, is, is the way we talked one day about uh, Las Meninas by um, Diego Velasquez, which you might know. I'm going to you'll probably recognize it even if you don't know the name. I'm going to send you an image just in case. Um, <clears throat> and I was thinking about Las Meninas a lot because I remember you have to remember I was like 14 uh, like, and so for her, for my Spanish teacher, like Las Meninas is like a really interesting painting, not just because you get like this painting of the royal family, but you get the painter painting the royal family. You get the mirror, um, in the background that's showing the painter painting the royal family. The actual main subject is not... The royal family that is being painted by that painter, the the main subject of this painting is other members of the royal family getting ready to be painted. And then in the back background, you've got another guy who's walking out of the room, you know? Yeah. I was thinking about that other guy walking back out of the room and the mirrors a lot during this movie because there's a really fucking cool thing that Preminger does 
you mentioned earlier where like there will be a lot of different like planes of focus in throughout this movie. So like mm-hmm. in in a shot, maybe you'll have like um the detective and Lidecker having a conversation, and then behind them you will see the painting of Laura, and then like even a little further back you will see the window outside raining. You know, or there are like. Yeah. A lot of shots throughout this movie where they're in these tacky homes, um, uh, these tacky rich people homes, and there's, like, people talking and then, like, various paintings or or oftentimes mirrors. Mirrors feature really heavily throughout this movie, especially in backgrounds. Um, and I guess I was just thinking about it. Um, oh, and the last thing I was going to mention is that there are often... Like, in the first scene in Treadwell's home, you see, like, <clears throat> Lidecker and um, uh, the detective and... Um, I've already forgotten the detective's name again. It's fine. <laughs> Mark. <laughs> you see Lidecker and Mark and, and Carpenter talking. And then, like, way in the background, you see, like, like just doorways that you don't really know where they're going elsewhere in the household. And so I was thinking about Las Meninas a lot because like there's so much like open space and other images occupying these images that sort of like, to me suggests like reflection, you know, in the mirrors and in the other images. And then like the openness reflecting like questions, like where the fuck, where's that door go to? We saw Shelby Carpenter come out of it. What was he doing back there? Was he fucking Anne Treadwell? I think he was fucking Anne Treadwell, but I don't actually know. This movie is very being very coy about that fact, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I just thought it was so cool. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. I'm getting out of my ass. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just think this movie's fucking rad. Yeah. Um, I don't have a ton to say about this movie. No. Is the thing I like this movie a lot. Me too. I I highly. It's like up there with the third man as like favorite noir for me now. Um, oh, absolutely. The third man is still just a, like the third man is just always going to be special to me. But like, I it's to the point where I would like. I don't think there's like a Criterion release of Laura or something. But if there was, I'd get it. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something just for my own amusement, real quick. Uh, I'm googling, I'm searching on Letterboxd Noir, seeing if I can get. Yeah, here's just a big list of 880 noir movies. Uh, that conveniently is separating out neo noir. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're just gonna sort by popularity. No, we're just gonna filter by what I've seen because I'm curious about this. Oh, it says here, I've watched like 40. <laughs> and this is like, yeah. of the like pre-neo-noir era, like top three, easy, <laughs> you know? I just yeah. like these movies a lot. <laughs> Which one is this? Is this the one with uh, 879 films Yes, this is uh, from J. Butts 15. <laughs> J. Butts 15. Yes. So, wait. I, I'll send you. Where the, does this, I just see Josh. I'll send you the link. 
Letterbox.com slash jbots15. Oh, yeah, jbots15. <laughs> slash list slash one. No, I got it. It is jbots15. Um, yeah. I've only seen 26 of these. That might be incorrect. But... Yeah. Man, you got to see Sunset also, Boulevard. You, you are more of a noir person than me. You got to see Sunset Boulevard. I'm quibbling with this um, list. Night of the Hunter is not noir. Yeah, no, that's... Rafifi is not the, noir. This, this list feels, like, overly expansive. Yeah. I guess mm. better to to be over-inclusive than, like, trying to draw a clean... Because noir is not, like, an easily defined genre in the way that, like, action is, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um. So... Man, I love old movies where you're like, you look at the poster and it says The Fugitive and you're like, oh, let me click on, on that. I wonder if it's like related to the, the later one by Sidney Lumet or whatever. Um, and then it the name of on there just says On the Night of the Fire. <laughs> I just love when old, like, old movies had like five different titles. <laughs> You've got to watch Sunset Boulevard. Shit, dude. I may have seen it. I feel like I have. I don't know. Some of this is there's one sort of like. Eh. Oh, uh, it wasn't you. It was M who needs to see it. Because you, it maybe I haven't seen this one. It I don't says know. on it says on Letterbox that you have, but like, you know, you got you got to fucking watch Sunset yeah. Boulevard. I've seen so many fucking movies, uh, and there are a lot of them that. Uh, you know, maybe when we get to, because because David Lynch has made Sunset Boulevard like four times now. Um, maybe yeah. when we get to like Mulholland, we'll be like, "Hey, Mulholland!" Next week, before the, before Mulholland, we're just going to take a quick little like diversion into Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, um, I'm excited for when we get to to just Twin Peaks proper and we're just like watching whatever fucking movie we want to mm. watch and then doing like Twin Peaks and recording the same yeah. night. Uh, that's going to be nice. I want to get back into like movie mode. Work has been like so fucking and I've I've, I've tweeted about it and um, retweeted various things. Um, I, I'm very cagey for like obvious reasons about talking about what it is I do for my work. But uh, if you go scroll through my Twitter timeline on Maine and maybe look at like local news articles to the city from the city of Chicago that I've retweeted, you can gather what's going on with me right now. Um, yeah. <clears throat> work has just made me so miserable the last few weeks that I've just been like turning off my brain and gaming. Once the, I'm hoping that this work situation is sorted out by the end of the month because I keep finding myself like hearing about a movie on another podcast or seeing a poster on Letterboxd or what have you and being like excited about the idea of movies. I have like six things I want to watch. It's just that whenever I could be watching a movie lately, I just, I don't have it in me at all. So (sighs) it is what it is. We didn't solicit any questions this time. So uh, that's a weight off our shoulders. Oh, um, but we do have to rate stairs, unless you had something else to say. Mm-hmm. No, wait. <clears throat> Let me pull this up and and double check. Um, I think that I think that Joe 
meant this for um I think that Zhuo meant this for uh pondering Putan. But sent an email to the Ghost Divers Gmail account titled Stairwells, but with the header Hello Connor and Neve, but also Zhuo is well known for doing joke dear whatever for us. Yeah, okay. So maybe I'll just do this on both podcasts. Maybe that's what I'm going to do. Um, here's the question. Are you ready for this? Yeah, and then I have another question. I'm can a movie be evil? Yes, obviously. The yeah. wind can be evil. Yeah. A movie can definitely be evil. Yeah. What was that fucking Eye in the Sky uh, movie? Triumph of the Will exists. <laughs> Eye in the Sky is an evil movie, yeah. Um remember last week on the podcast when I was like, hey, I heard the word military and entertainment complex, and I found that just as a phrase really intriguing, and I'm going to start using it. Uh, yeah, movies can be evil. <laughs> yeah. Because the military entertainment complex is a thing that is real and exists and affects our daily lives and sometimes manifests as TV shows where a green lawyer uh, breaks through the fourth wall to make the MCU more feminist because if you like the Captain Marvel movie, maybe you're going, if you think the Captain Marvel movie is feminist, you'll go watch it and then you'll be like, oh, maybe I should join the Air Force. (laughs) I have a question. More female drone pilots. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, what's your question? Uh, This one comes to us from Emrys. Um, to the export audio email. Uh, hi, Em and Autumn. Happy 50 episodes. Who's your favorite C-tier Batman-associated character, and who is your favorite Batman clone slash knockoff? <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure this one was not meant for me. No part of this suggests it was meant well, for me. Batman's going up tomorrow morning and Emrys is going to be like, oh, you missed my question. And Emrys, I'm sorry we missed your question. I answered every other email that came in for episode 50 and I just, I missed yours. It was in on time and I just missed it. And I apologize as way of apology. We're answering it on stairwells. Nia, who's your favorite C-tier, C-tier Batman associated character? Uh, so this is the part that's really hard for me. Who's your favorite C-tier Batman-associated character, goddammit? <laughs> Answer the fucking question. I disappointed Emrys. You have to make up for this. <laughs> I I don't know Batman that well. Tell me a C-tier Batman character now. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know Batman man well enough to know tiers of characters. Um... Emrys, I will just say the entire cast of Gotham Academy. Just everybody in that book is delightful and deserves so much better than um, the big two comics industry of the last 10 years. Um, Who's your favorite Batman clone slash knockoff? Oh, you sorry. You were going. No, it's fine. Uh, I don't go here. I was going to say, like, I feel like, you know... Catwoman or po- Poison Ivy or something that's not C tier and so no, that's no yeah those are A tier characters 
Oh god, there's a B tier in between. Yes. I don't even know who the B tier is then. <laughs> I thought A tier was like Alfred. Well, sure. But I would say that Catwoman is also an A-tier Batman character. Nora is looking at me with disgust at your lack of knowledge is, about Batman right now. Is is Man Bat uh, C-tier? Man Bat is C-tier. Okay. I was worried it might be like B-tier. Okay. I like Man Bat just because it's, it's so funny to have Batman and then Man Bat, and Man Bat is just like Man It is pretty funny. Um. Is that also your answer for your favorite Batman clone slash knockoff? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Maybe. I'll have to think of like, because that's like within the Batman universe. I mean, I guess it is technically a Batman knockoff. I mean, I feel like you could say Darkman for this. I I would accept the shadow or the spirit. (laughs) Yeah. Or... Nora, you're getting conscripted. Who's your favorite Batman clone slash knockoff? Nightwing. <laughs> you're all disappointing me right now. Um, is the is is the owl guy from Watchmen kind of a Batman knockoff? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'll say him. I forget his name. I typed in Night Isle. Night Owl, and I don't think that's, that's him, him, but maybe it is. Okay. I got a different Night Owl or something. Last question from Emerus. Does anyone remember Dark Claw? No, I do not remember Dark Claw. Dark Oh Claw. my god. You don't know about Amalgam Comics, do you? No. <laughs> I don't go here. I'm going to send you an image of Dark Claw real quick. So Amalgam um was a crossover between Marvel and DC in, oh God, I want to say the 90s. Yeah, the 90s. Um, where it was like all the all the characters in the Amalgam universes, in the Amalgam universe, were amalgams of Marvel and DC characters. So Dark Claw is an amalgam of Batman merging with Wolverine. Oh, Wolverine. <laughs> Yeah, She-Hulk goes to K-E-V-I-N and says, also, when are the, ca- the X-Men getting here? I get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's another thing she complains about, by the way, that they haven't done the X-Men yet. That's a problem with the MCU. That is a problem with the MCU. When are they doing X-Men? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I just, I feel, I love the X-Men in a way that I don't with a lot of this shit, so... um Part of me is like, no, don't do the X Men. <laughs> I actually have fondness for those characters. Now that that's a series where I know like some C tier characters and would have opinions. Um, um, we didn't rate the stairs for for Laura. Oh yeah. Uh, I feel like a little bit better than I rated last time. Um, still not like fantastic but like they they built some stairs on these sound sets would you would you rate it last time stages. um let's see when did i you watched this last year lord have mercy yeah i did you gave it an f last time i feel like it's a c okay it's not an i f. feel like it's a c yeah there's some there are some functional yeah. stairs you know mm-hmm. there, there are some nice looking ones but they don't feature that prominently you know 
and like there's the part at the end where um where Dana Andrews, Mark, the detective, um, is like on the stairs listening, uh, you know, goes down the stairs and is like, wait, didn't Waldo leave? Because um, Waldo is listening on the stairs and then it's like, no, I've been waiting for him to leave. Yeah. Uh, and then runs up the stairs and tries to, you know, get back in um, all that stuff. Uh, and you don't like see the stairs, but they do more stairs than I expect from a soundstage. Yeah. Um, and also there is like a, a pivotal scene that involves going up and down or down and up the stairs. Right. Uh, even if they don't have the, the budget to build massive staircases or they're, and they're not shooting on location. So, um, it's deserving of a seat. Yeah. I'd say so. Twin Peaks. <laughs> Sorry, I just I just looked at the spreadsheet. Next week is tin, Twin Peaks. We're watching the pilot. Pin Twinks. Yeah. Uh. Well. Yeah. Twink peas. <laughs> Until that time, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at Foxmomnia on Twitter and co-host. Um, go listen to my other podcasts. Uh. Ghost Divers, uh, we just, when you're hearing this, we're, we're like starting out Paranoia Agent. Uh, it's going to be another short little series, but um, we have uh, uh, Josh McKenzie of Swim Fans on uh, talking about it with us. Um, and those are good episodes. I, I, I think we had some pretty good discussion. Um, I I would recommend people listen to them Uh, also in part so that people can hear uh, Josh say something really fucking wild about uh, his take on the, the, the status of a movie and whether or not it is a Christmas movie. And I'm going to leave it at that. I want people to go listen to it. Uh, I lost my goddamn mind. And when I told you about it, you lost your mind. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll leave that for people listening to ghost divers. Um, and then, uh, you can also listen to Pondering Pouton, which, which I've mentioned previously somehow when, oh, when we were doing emails, I was like, why did I mention, (laughs) uh, it is a comedy podcast, um, where Connor and I read, uh, the Cromartie high school manga at the rate that it was published in the weekly Shonen magazine, which is like currently six pages a, a week basically um and then just like goof off the, the most recent <laughs> there's the one that will be coming out next uh like tomorrow if you're you're listening to this uh that we have not recorded yet and i don't know what it is yet but the one uh that we just did um is probably the stupidest stupidest one yet complimentary <laughs> so um yeah, the, those are the two ones to check out. Also, if you've made it this far, you heard Autumn talking about work situation. Uh, if you are listening to this in the free feed and you are not a patron of the network, I, I highly encourage you to do that. It's great. One dollar is like honestly a steal. Um, and- if you're listening to this and giving one dollar, you should bump it up to five dollars or whatever. Um, we do great work. And... um. It just, it's just helping out a little extra this month. Like, I yeah. think this work stuff will be resolved sooner than later. 
but it's very stressful right now. <laughs> and so, yeah. Uh really really appreciate all the patrons always, but especially this month. <laughs> yeah. We got stuff coming. Yeah. There's stuff cooking. Uh-huh. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Autumnal underscore coffee. Um, in my bio there, you can also find a link to my coffee page where you can just give me money directly if you feel, if the spirit moves you. Um, uh, that's the last time I'll mention this. Anyway, uh, beyond that, uh, Twitter at Autumnal coffee underscore coffee. Uh, co-host at Autumnal. Uh, the Patreon, you can find by going to exportodd.io. We've got links to all the free feeds there. And Nia already explained the Patreon tiers to you. Um, be on the lookout for a new podcast coming to that Patreon soon. Um, I'm finalizing yeah. some things. So, not not your new podcast. That's another, that's not on the Patreon. I'm not doing a new podcast. I'm doing a new podcast. <laughs> it's- it's technically out there if you know where to yeah. look. I have a different new podcast that will that will be on the Export Audio Patreon to some extent. So, yeah. <clears throat> um. Anyway, um, the other thing I will say is if that if you like this podcast, do like go tell a friend about it. Yeah, tell people to listen to it. Um, that helps out a lot. Uh, just having like more people finding out about us. Uh, also, you can go and rate us on whatever podcast app you're using if it allows rating. Uh, based on every podcast that I listen to, it seems like it only really matters on Apple Podcasts. I don't know why, but um, I don't use Apple Podcasts, so I never think to say that. But please review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, I do. I don't use it either, but I do have the power to to check the ratings because I I put most of the export ones on the Apple mm-hmm. podcast. Um, me having Apple products, I have the like Apple login stuff. Yeah, I just so. I don't own any Apple products, and so I was like trying to put things on Apple Podcasts a little while back, and was just like I I'm not able to use this service. They want my credit card number. The- I'm trying to give it to them, and they're not taking it. Please just do this for me, Nia. <laughs> The thing that's wildest about it is every time I go to the Apple podcast, like thing to just like check, like occasionally I'll just check in on it. Um, sometimes look to see if there's any new reviews, uh, especially cause I want more for ghost divers. Cause someone left one saying that I need speech therapy and that person can fuck off. Cause I already did as a kid because I sounded too faggoty. Um, so fuck off. But anyway, um, every time I do that, I'm on my laptop and it's like, you need to verify it's you. Uh, push this and we'll send a code and you have to type it in. And so I push it and then on my fucking laptop, the code pops up and then I have to move it out of the way so I can see the area to enter it. And I'm like, how do you not just know that it's me? <laughs> my phone does this all the time. I'm on the- my phone is able to just be like, oh, we picked up you just got a two factor code in your text messages. We'll just like put that in your clipboard and you can just hit paste. Yeah. It's not even doing that. Like part of me is, is just like, I am on an Apple laptop right now that's logged into this Apple account. Don't can't you just connect that to no, me logging absolutely in? Absolutely not. Um it's so annoying. Anyway. Let's get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real.
Oh crap. I hit leave call instead of stop recording. Bella Lugos is dead, 